I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 1, and we're going to read through uh, from verse 3 to 14, that section which is entitled in the ESV, Spiritual Blessings in Christ. Um, we've had two messages on this so far, and so I want to bring you to the final section of this blessing, benediction, or prayer that Paul utters at the opening of this letter, kind of outpouring of his praise and thanksgiving and adoration of God. Um, this morning, I woke up feeling particularly unwell. I almost bailed, um, texted Jeremy, and caused him to have heart palpitations for a few seconds. Um, so um, bear with me. I'm not feeling 100%. Um, but I also do feel a real sense of anticipation in terms of what I think the Lord would love to say to us through this passage. Let me read to you the whole section, and then I'll draw your attention to the final verses. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father, Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. Then our final section that I want us to pay attention to today. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So it seems there that he's referring to the reality that the, the early believers were all Jewish, we have obtained an inheritance, we who were the first to hope in Christ. But now he thinks about these Ephesian Christians, this church of Jew and Gentile. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want to remind you of what it is that we focused on in the first couple of weeks of looking at this particular passage. We were thinking about the reality of election, how Paul begins to speak about the God who chose us in him. Uh, Before the foundation of the world, the God who set his eye and heart upon you even before you ever thought of him, and how that puts us in a position of incredible security and assurance as Christians. I'm not a Christian because I was smarter or harder working or better, more morally perfect than anyone else. I'm a Christian because God had me in his heart and his affection, and he'll never let me go. That's what we believe. And then we talked about Our redemption, how Paul talks about the redeeming of all things, but how we've been redeemed through his blood, and how this means that God is going to put the worlds to right. 
and how our lives are purchased by the blood of Jesus. And now in this final part, I want to focus upon what I think is perhaps, perhaps could be thought of as the greatest privilege that Christians know. And in order to set the context for this incredible truth and affirmation, what Paul tells us in this final section, I just want to revisit the the founding and the planting of this church in Ephesus, because I think it helps us understand what Paul's saying here. Back in Acts chapter 19, we learn about Paul traveling through to this city, Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it says, Acts 19.1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So he was traveling through and he found um, a group of Jewish men who seemed to have some kind of understanding of, of the Messiah to some degree, but it seems that their knowledge is patchy, very patchy. And so it then says that he, Paul said to them, he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then Paul answered, he said, into what then were you baptized? So he's found these men who professed to, to be part of this, perhaps a club or a group who seemed to have some kind of spiritual life about them. There's something going on there. And they've been baptized, but he says, into what? And they said, into John's baptism. Remember, John was Jesus' cousin, and he preached the renewal of your life through repentance and baptism as an anticipation of the coming of Jesus. They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, we're told, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying and there were about 12 men in all. So Paul has stumbled across this group of men who clearly are distinct from many of the Jews he's met. They, they, they have some kind of profession. They've been baptized. And as he begins to interrogate their experience and their understanding, he realizes that it's very patchy and there are holes in their knowledge. They don't really know about the Jesus who has died for our sins, and they haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what happens next pretty much mirrors what Paul has said in Ephesians 1 when he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that an exact description of what Luke has told us happened there? They, hear, they heard the gospel, they believed, were baptized in the name of Jesus, and Paul laid his hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, there are a couple of ways we can assess what's going on here before we get into our main, the meat of what we want to think about. There's a negative way and a positive way. The negative way is this. I think what it teaches us is it's possible to be in and around the context of church, gatherings of worshipers like this, and for there to be those present who are not truly Christian who maybe for whatever reason through custom or habit or um, a sense of duty or whatever else are church attenders, but they seem to lack something. 
There's a kind of incomplete gestation. Gestation is the period of development in the womb or partial birth. And so it can be the case that within a church, it can be like the experience of walking around a museum. You know how in some museums you can see creatures in various forms of development before birth, uh, creatures that have been taken out of the wombs of a mother and then put into glass jars and preserved in, in a sense undeveloped and unformed. And I think in some ways this is what Paul's encountering when he meets these professing believers in Ephesus for the first time. He meets men who have not been fully formed. They have the beginnings of faith. They've, they feel a resonance with the message of John the Baptist, the message of repentance, and so they've been baptized. But whatever their understanding is, it's inadequate. And they're not really followers of Jesus. And they haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me that that can be a reality today as much as it was then. Even for those who have heard the gospel, that it may be the case that you haven't heard it with understanding or it hasn't really resonated in your heart with faith and belief and that the Spirit hasn't worked in your life in that full and complete way. And the result, of course, for them was that undoubtedly that there was a great amount of uncertainty in their lives around what their relationship with God, their most fogginess theologically. They didn't really understand their faith. They couldn't have articulated the gospel. There was a distance perhaps in their relationship with God and, and so on. That's the negative way of looking at it. That we can in any church find such people, I think, who, whose faith is maybe not fully formed. And it may well be the case with you. The other side to it, however, is that I think we can put this positively, that it is Paul's expectation that when he encounters someone who has come to faith and experienced the work of God in their life that's been met with an understanding, they've heard the gospel, they've believed, and they've been sealed with the Spirit, what you find there is a believer, typically, who is full of an immense sense of courage and confidence and certainty and assurance about the things that they believe and profess. That's why he says in Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It's not a kind of a hope, a clinging on, hope against hope, wish or desire. There is a sense of, of upright confidence this is past tense. We have obtained an inheritance. It may not be in our hands right now, the heavenly reality of all that God promises to us, but it is very much ours. And so in contrast to the disciples who we met in Ephesus to begin with, who were full of fogginess and uncertainty in that, the normal, healthy posture of the Christian is one in which you feel that, that deep sense of confidence of who you are in Christ. And I know that there are exceptions to that. People who, for whatever reason, suffer with a wavering and doubt and accusation. That, But I'm talking about the normal posture of the Christian. And this is an arrogance as well. It's not like the, the swagger of someone who attends a job interview and then leaves and says, I think I killed it, you know. Or, you know, goes on a date for the first time and says, she is definitely into me. It's not that kind of that arrogance where you look at yourself and think, yeah, I've got this. I've got this down. This is all, for Paul, it's an entirely passive thing in the sense that he says, we've obtained an inheritance because having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in all of it, you reflect back on the reality of your faith and where you are now, 
And you say, it was all because of God. He chose me. It's all worked out according to the counsel of his will. And I have no fear, no anxiety, and no doubt because I know that the Father set his affection on me. And it wasn't because of me. It was because of him. And I want to ask you the question, what is it then that creates that deep sense of certainty and confidence in the life of the believer? And I think that the answer that Paul gives us, I think there are a number of ways you can answer it, but the one that he gives us here in Ephesians 1 is that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's there in verse 13. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I want to ask you just quickly what a seal is before we unpack this in some depth. Charles Hodge, commentator from over 100 years ago, he says a seal in the ancient world had three purposes. A seal could be a mark of genuineness. So much like in our history a, a noble or a king might have a signet ring which had their, their um, emblem and stamped upon it so that when they wrote a letter, they could stamp it with a wax seal and it would carry the authority and the mark of being genuine that it's written by them and sent by them. That's one way in which a seal was used in the ancient world also. Another way was to secure something so much like you might have, you know, perhaps a few times a week, a package flops through your door from Amazon Prime. And the first thing you do eagerly is you rip off the seal. Occasionally they arrive, burst open, don't they? You wonder how, what happened in the journey between then and now. But typically there's a seal. You rip it off, and that seal was there to secure the content and the same was true in the ancient world. This word seal, it's used, for example, when Jesus is laid in his tomb. The seal was around the entrance to the tomb to show that no one had tampered with the tomb and no one had tampered with the body. A security. And the third way is to do with, um, it's, it's a mark of ownership. About 16 years ago, I was... Um, uh, was and still am deeply in love with, with Sian. And uh, <laughs> I was about to say, I was in love. I, was, I still am, very much. And, um, and uh, I was a student at the time, and I scrimped and saved I, um, and pulled together some money. Went to Hatton Garden and walked into a shop and bought a ring in the first shop I walked into. Um, uncharacteristically decisive of me. And, um, and I... I took her out on a boat in Hyde Park on, on the Serpentine there. And um, she didn't know what was coming. It was a surprise. She hadn't been involved in choosing the ring, nor did she know that she was about to be proposed to, which is the way it should be done, guys, okay? <laughs> and as we pushed out into the water, I pulled out the little red box, and uh, panic crossed her face, and I opened the box, and I proposed. And in there was a ring. And that ring, she then put on her finger after a little cry. Um, I'm not sure why she cried to this day. But she put it on her finger. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, it may not have been a particularly impressive ring. Um, one of her best friends looked at it and said, 
oh, when, when you're older, he can get you something nicer, can't he? It didn't, it wasn't particularly impressive, but it was, it was a ring. It was enough. And, um, and she immediately actually was with her family abroad for a month after that in Malaysia where visiting relatives. And uh, she wore that ring. And that was, in a sense, a seal of ownership. Um, you're mine, or you will be mine, in principle. Our wedding day is coming. And you know, in modern Greek, the word for, mod- for an engagement ring is the same word that Paul uses here when he speaks about the Holy Spirit as the guarantee or the down payment. It's the same word that they use today for an engagement ring. The guarantee or down payment of our inheritance because it speaks of ownership. Um, and therefore, you put all this together, genuineness, security, ownership. What Paul is describing here is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian where God says, you're mine. You're sealed. I want to ask you, what is this sealing of the Spirit? And how do you know if you have it, if you have been sealed? And I want to give you a few facets to what I believe the Scriptures teach us about the sealing of the Spirit in our lives. And the first is this, that the sealing of the Spirit is God himself. This, to me is the great mind-blowing reality of New Testament faith. And it's indicated here in what Paul says when he says we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what he's doing is he's calling to mind those scriptures in which God had spoken and created a sense of expectation and hope that one day he would pour out himself, his own spirit upon his people. The most important passage of which is Joel chapter 2, the Old Testament prophetic book of Joel, when it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then On the night when Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested in order to be crucified, he's there with his disciples eating a Passover meal. And he knows that he's about to leave. He's going to depart from them. But he doesn't want them to be disheartened or dismayed or discouraged. On the contrary, he wants them to feel a great sense of of, uh, encouragement and certainty about the future. And this is what he says to them. He says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper or the comforter, which is his name here for the Holy Spirit, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying there'll be a kind of exchange here. I will no longer be with you physically. I won't be physically present with you. And any one of us would give... All, everything we have, every possession we own, every privilege we enjoy for just one moment to be in the physical presence of Jesus, something that we greatly anticipate when we see him face to face at the resurrection of the living and the dead, right? But Jesus says, hang on, it's better that I'm not with you because as I go to be with the Father, I will send you the comforter, the helper. 
And there are lots of things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, but the one that Jesus draws attention to a little bit later in that passage, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. So he's a Spirit who comes and brings revelation, primarily in what the apostles understood about the gospel and that's documented here in the New Testament, but he's a Spirit who opens eyes, who creates and a sense in the life of the believer that they know God. So that what is, cannot be discerned just purely through intellect is opened up to your hearts by the work of the Spirit. That's what Paul says in one of his letters to the Corinthians. So that you, the eyes of your hearts are opened. You understand the gospel. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. And spiritual truth can only be revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. It's better Jesus is gone because the Spirit's poured out and he, he opens up our eyes. I think something of what this means for us is indicated in Jeremiah 31. When God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people, with the house of Israel. And again, this is speaking prophetically about the church. He says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. What Jeremiah was pointing to was the era when God would pour out his spirit upon men and women, boys and girls. And you would no longer feel any sense of distance between you and the living God who, you know, in the Old Testament imagery, dwells in unapproachable um, power and awesome majesty on the mountain. But rather, God draws near to you by the work of his spirit so that you can know God. And no longer do we say, teach each other and say, know the Lord. But each of us knows God. There's a kind of democratization of the intimacy and the reality of what it means to know God and know him, know him genuinely as a friend. And I think this is what Paul, this is what he's speaking of when he says here, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says in one of his other letters that you are a temple of the Spirit. God has come and made his dwelling inside you. And it seems to me that in order to understand this fully, we have to recognize that what Paul is talking about here is an experience of God. And I say that word very deliberately because I want to set it slightly in opposition to just the merely intellectual knowledge of God which is vital, and which I don't rubbish or downplay. But it's more than just knowledge about God, and it's more than just the truth you accept that I've been touched by the Spirit. But what Paul's talking about here when he says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit is in my mind unquestionably a reality that you can say, I have experienced God. And I'm not saying that it has to look a particular way. I think Christians in history have always gone wrong when they've tried to categorize precisely what that experience must look or feel like. And it seems to me that we, go, we make an error when we say that. But I do believe, nevertheless, <clears throat> that it's vital that every one of you can say, I know I have been sealed by the Spirit. The reason why I put so much emphasis on this and say, look, this has to be something personal to you, that you know the work of God in your life in this very intimate way, is for a couple of reasons here. 
One is because of the nature of a down payment or a guarantee. When he says here, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or down payment of our inheritance. Just think about that for a second. What is he a down payment for? And the answer is that he gives us your future inheritance in eternity. And then ask yourself the question this. What is the purpose of a guarantee if you're not even aware, consciously, that you have it in your possession? You know, you may well have bought products that came with a guarantee, but unless you look at that piece of paper and know that this thing is guaranteed, then the guarantee will lie useless in the bottom of a drawer, won't it? And it seems to me like it's a bit like proposing to your girlfriend without offering her a ring. You need to give a token, a guarantee, a down payment, a deposit of what is yet to come. And if you ask me the question, well, what is that future inheritance? I would say to you that the central element of that future inheritance is without question, God himself. Our expectation of our future, of the heavenly reality, is that you will see Christ face to face. That now we see in a mirror darkly, then face to face, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That God himself is your inheritance. He is our reward. And it seems to me, therefore, that if we will experience him then to the maximum and know him in that totally unfiltered, face-to-face, intimate way eternally, then it has to follow that the down payment or the guarantee that we enjoy now is some taste of what we'll know eternally. Or else it's not, it has no worth as a guarantee or a down payment. It's some taste of what's to come. And therefore, what I'm trying to help you to understand, friends, is that the normal Christian experience should be this. That in some way that you can give testimony to, you have tasted the reality of who God is in your life. That this seal of the Spirit is a knowledge of God, the experience of God. Not without limit, or else you would not bear it, but a taste It wasn't just the case that you heard certain truths and just decided through an intellectual process to align your life to this gospel. But God invaded, made his residence in you. And you know it happened. You can say, I know it. And I think think that it's the nature of a down payment or a guarantee that it has to work like that. You have to know something of this at an experiential level, experiential level. And I'll add to that as well, that when I'm reading the book of Acts, this is what we see in the New Testament time and time again. It's there implicit, isn't it, in Paul's question to those disciples in Acts 19 when he first met them in Ephesus and he asked them this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? For Paul, that is a diagnostic question. He wants to know the reality of their encounter with the living God. And he assumes that if they have received the Spirit, that they can give testimony to it. They would say, yes, absolutely, we have. We know it happened. We experienced this. 
It's there in the assumption of the question he asks. And you see it every time that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people in the book of Acts. It's a marked moment. Something happens. We're not always told exactly what happens, but something happens to impress it upon the experience of those who are receiving the Spirit that they are indeed encountering God. It's there in Acts chapter 8 when Philip the evangelist goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel for the first time to the Samaritans. But they're not filled with the Spirit. Then Peter and John go down, they pray for them, they receive the Spirit. And it's such an impressive thing, a reality, an experienced reality, that a magician, a local magician says, oh, teach me your trick. I'll give you money if you teach me how to do what you just did. It's there in Acts 8, it's there in Acts 10 when Cornelius His whole household hears the gospel from Peter. He's a Gentile. They hear the gospel from Peter. And then the Spirit falls upon them. And then for for Peter, that's the evidence. He says, look, how can we withhold communion from them? You know, this fellowship with them, given that they've received the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's on them. It's visible. There's a sense in which I know that they have just encountered God. And it seems to me that wherever you look in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, this reality of the Spirit in your life is something that you must be able to give testimony to. You know that God has invaded your heart, your life, and come and made residence in you. I'm not in any way trying to tell you exactly what that must look or feel like. But you must be able to say, I know. And for, for the Christian, this is a life-changing felt reality. It's something that can keep you from disaster. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the the reality, I know that God has made his residence in me, is part of the reason why I can live a holy life, because I don't want to grieve this guest who has made his residence in, in this home that is my body. It's a reality that can give you overflowing joy also. Do you remember how in John's gospel when Jesus encountered the woman at the well? And he speak, look, pointing to the well, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And understandably, she begs Jesus, give me this water. Jesus, a few chapters later in John chapter 7, there's a beautiful moment where it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says, John's comment here is, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. Malcolm Muggeridge was a a journalist in the last century who became quite famous, a writer, and a man who encountered God, God saved him. And I came across this wonderful quote from one of his writings, where he explains something of this the experience of this, the reality of this, as he knew it. He says, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. 
I can fairly easily enough earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. In other words, he's in the top tax brackets. He says, that's success. <laughs> Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. Fame, success, pleasure. He says, it might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. So you can look back on a life and say, I've made an impact. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing less than nothing a positive impediment measured against one draft or a drink of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. What, I ask myself, does life hold? What is there in the works of time, in the past, now, and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water? Do you know this reality in your life? The seal of the Spirit is God himself in you. The reality of God. I'll add to that and more briefly. The seal of the Spirit is then also the knowledge of your sonship. Now I want to use, a, just briefly explain the gendered language here because I'm culturally attuned to the times. I, uh, in the New Testament era, sonship means full inheritance rights. The eldest son would inherit the titles, the properties, even the, the authority and the responsibility of his father. He would, in a sense, be his father reborn. And so yes, while it's true that every Christian can use more gender-neutral language, you can say, I'm a child of God. Or if you're a woman, you can say, I'm a daughter of God. That's true in the relational sense. But I also think that we must never lose, we have to retain the language of sonship because of its technical nature here in the New Testament. Much as we, you know, as, as men, you have to make an adjustment when we speak about ourselves being the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And I have to make that mental adjustment to think of myself in those terms, in terms of Christ as my husband or our husband, because we think of it collectively. But so also when you're thinking of sonship, this is a language we, we have to keep hold of. You can say, even if you're a woman, that you can enjoy sonship because of what it means in terms of not just the relational reality of knowing God as a father, but the technical sense of what it means to be a full heir. And so the sonship in the New Testament is, first of all, Christ's. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 6, when he speaks of himself as the Son of Man, he says that God the Father has set his seal upon the Son of Man. He's speaking of himself, and it's that language of sealing again. I've been sealed by the Father. And it seems to me to be pretty clear that when he's speaking about having been sealed by the Father, 
He's referring to those moments. They occur twice in the Gospels when we hear the voice of God over Jesus. It's there in Mark chapter 1 when he's being baptized and the voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's the seal of the Father upon the Son. It happens again when he's upon the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember how he, he goes up the mountain and he radiates light to Peter, James, and John? And then they hear the voice, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So the seal that's upon Christ's life, remember a seal is a mark of genuineness and of ownership. That seal is the voice of the Father speaking about Jesus, this is my son. And the seal was such a powerful reality in the life of Christ that even when he is in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, feeling, in a sense, more abandoned than he's ever known because the Father's will is that he should go to the cross so that the relational element perhaps is experiencing strain, even there he can call God Abba, Father, Because the certainty of who he is before God has been sealed. He has been sealed with the affirmation, this is my beloved son. That's the seal in Christ's life. And the wonder of wonders, the extraordinary reality of what this means when I've been describing to you that the seal is God himself in you. The reality is that with that comes the affirmation that you as a Christian can know something of that sonship that Christ himself knew. Partly because what Paul tells us here is partly this has to do with your union with Christ. That's a technical phrase, but what he says here, he keeps saying that we're in Christ. It says, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. The Christian is someone who's been put inside of Jesus so that his death on the cross for sins, you died with him. His resurrection, you're raised with him and you'll be with him eternally. You are hidden in Christ. So his sonship, in a sense, becomes yours. That's partly how you can think of it. You're in him. But the other way you can think of it is that he is in you. Galatians 4 is what Paul says about this. He said that God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his spirit into your life so that your heart cry can now be Abba. That's what it means to know your sonship. And this again, I must emphasize, is a felt reality. It's not something that you simply take hold of intellectually. It's more than that. It's something that seems to emanate from the the cry of the heart. In a very similar passage in Romans 8, this is what Paul says. Listen carefully to these words. He says that you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption 
as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The same cry that Jesus utters in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then he adds this. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a sense in which every Christian has experienced that as a revelation in your own life. The Spirit has come into you, and now he's constantly affirming you, like the voice over Jesus. This is my beloved son. There's a voice over you. You're my child. You're my son. And your spirit receives the the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and you, you know it's true of you. You don't know how you know, but you know. It's not just something that you have reasoned through, as important as your reasoning in your mind is. It's something that you know in your gut, as much as you know that you are alive right now. It's a felt reality, brother, sister. Is this, is this true of you? Are you certain that you're a Christian? That God has taken residence in your life in this way and that you can say, I, ha- I can call God Abba, I can call him Father? Because the Spirit is in me and testifies in me that I'm a, I'm a son. This is what Paul's saying is the normal Christian experience. And let me add one final thing. <clears throat> This seal of the Spirit then is also the reality of this work of the Holy Spirit in your life from that moment on. Now the seal is past tense. It's a one-off moment. It happens whether simultaneous with conversion. Some people think after, it can be later. I, I don't want to wade into those arguments. I just want to make it clear that there's a sense in which there's that moment. God's Spirit comes into you. But then... What's the evidence that you've been sealed? Because a seal is a down payment. It's something you enjoy right now. What's the evidence of it? And I think it helps, again, when we cast our minds forward to the inheritance. Remember, the seal is a a down payment or a guarantee of the future inheritance. That's what Paul's arguing. And ask yourself, what is it that you'll inherit in eternity? And part of it, as I told you, is you'll inherit God himself. You will know him face to face. But the other part of your inheritance has to do with you, the way in which you will be changed and transformed instantly when you see Christ face to face. And I would, I would categorize that transformation in two ways. I'll say partly you'll become fully human, and then you'll become fully alive. And this is what I mean by these two phrases. The fully human means this, that when, when Adam fell into sin, the whole human race experienced the marring of the image of God. We're still made in his image, but there's a sense in which that image has become distorted and damaged by the reality of sin in your life. But when you see Christ face to face, you will be so transformed into his likeness, we're told. We'll become like him because we'll see him as he is, it says in 1 John. That you'll be totally human again. And when I say you'll be fully alive, what I mean by that is this, that I think there's a sense in which that humanity that we'll enjoy in eternity, the reality of what we become, will be so much superior to who we are right now on earth because what we are right now on earth has been damaged by the effects of sin. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? That in eternity, you as a human will will be, all the potential that God's put into you will be allowed to flourish and bloom. The inventions, the poetry, 
the creation, the relationships, the enjoyment of love and intimacy. Every dimension of your being stretched out and expanding to its fullest capacities into eternity. We won't just be on clouds playing harps. We'll be building and creating and making and thinking and enjoying and speaking and laughing, but doing so without any of the tainting or limiting effects of sin. Fully alive. C.S. Lewis said about that future reality, he said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to, hopefully not in the coffee break after this, but (laughs) may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. I think that's true. Maybe if you saw yourself in a mirror, as you will be before Christ one day, you'll be tempted to bow down and worship yourself because you'll be so much more beautiful and radiant and fully human and fully alive. And it seems to me that when Paul says that we have received the seal of the Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, that what he's saying is that something of that reality has begun in you now if you're a Christian. That on the one hand, you're, you're becoming fully human. The spirit in you is, is, is chastening you and transforming you and killing the flesh and allowing the fruit of the spirit to develop in you. As he says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, that Christ-like character, the work of the presence of God in your life, you're becoming fully human. And you're becoming fully alive because a mark of the reality of the seal of the Spirit in the life of the Christian is that suddenly God begins to release and unleash his gifts in you for the service of him. So what we saw happen when the Ephesian Christians received the Spirit, when Paul had laid his hands on them, we're told, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Of course, when you read the whole of your New Testament, you know that there are many ways that the Spirit energizes your humanity in all kinds of diverse gifts. Listed among them are things that you and I would think of as relatively mundane even, like the gift of teaching or the gift of administration or of helping or of mercy or of giving. And it seems to me that the indication is it's just every facet of our being can be energized by the Spirit and released for His glory. Isn't that what Paul's saying here when he says that this is all to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory? He keeps saying that. You, Christian, are designed to become fully human, fully alive to the praise of his glory so that people will look at you and they'll begin to worship the Jesus who's taken hold of you. And so, friend, I recognize that there are different types of people in this room today. There are those of you who simply will say, I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't know this reality in my life. I don't know God. My encouragement is, listen, this can be yours. You hear the gospel of Christ dying for your sins so that you can be forgiven and raised from the dead so that you can know him eternally. And you believe it. You say, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And the Holy Spirit can take residence in your life. 
Some of you are there. And it may be the case that today you want to pray to the Lord and say, God, come. Forgive me of my sin and fill me with your spirit. I think that for most of us, you will say, you will gladly resonate with the things I've been speaking about today. And you'll say, yes, I know that sonship. I know the reality of God in my life. I've not just experienced him once. I've experienced him multiple times in all kinds of ways. I know God is near me. I don't always feel the same level of intimacy or closeness, but I've known him and I know him. And I hope that everything that we've heard today is a a powerful encouragement to you. That's why Paul wrote it to the Ephesians, to stir up that gratitude in them. God in you, the miracle of your salvation, the privilege that you now have as as a child of God or as a son of God. And then there may be a few of you who think, look, I I believe this gospel. I think I do. But it feels like my life is a pale version of what it means to be a Christian. My exhortation and encouragement to you, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 11, he tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. And he says, speaking about the reality of, of the Father's love and generosity upon us as, as his children. He says this. If you are, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think we're led to, to see in the writings of Paul that the longing for more of God is a healthy God-birthed desire and that God's fatherly desire towards us as his children is to keep giving us greater grace and more measure of his spirit in us. And I want to urge you, seek him. Ask. Knock. Knock. 